Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, January 2nd, 2022. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 31st are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,330, that's 18330. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 18,335, that's 18335. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Doctor's Opinion. I am a distinct entity. The doctor's opinion is the foundation of the whole book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and of the entire 12-step program. This section may simply seem to be a helpful introductory note, but without it, the entire book doesn't make sense. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth the doctor who wrote the two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Dr. Silkworth was one of the very first people to actually describe and define the disease of alcoholism. The doctor agreed with the AA members that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So, too, with compulsive overeaters. Put simply, we have an allergy of the body, which means that once we start ingesting, eating certain foods, we develop cravings which overpower us. And we have a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again, and again, and again, and again. Joining us today to speak about this very topic, about the doctor's opinion, is Melissa C., a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Melissa is dedicated to living the program of recovery, which of course includes carrying the message of recovery and it's always with great delight and appreciation to welcome Melissa C. to the line. Good morning, Melissa. Hi. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for that excellent introduction, um, as always, and um, just really honored and excited to be um, speaking on this doctor's opinion, uh, especially it's you know it's the start of the new year so my hope is that there's lots of people on here who are hoping that this year is going to be different and um and maybe there'll be something here you know that that they'll be able to hear and apply um to make that you know to make that actually a fact so um you know before i any time before i'm going to speak whether it's like a one on one with a sponsee or a fellow or um, in a you know in a public meeting, I really try to pray and meditate and try to conjure up in my mind um, someone who's still out there sick and suffering. And I, my prayer is pretty much always the same. I ask God to just come in, you know, and just direct me. Just hopefully, like let the words that I you know that I speak land on the right ears, the person who's 
supposed to hear it, and hopefully I say it in a way that their ears can actually, you know, hear it. And um, so that's my prayer this morning and my my hope. Um, you know, the doctor's opinion. Um, I generally, when I when I start working with somebody, um, and I have early conversations with people, I, I open up the doctor's opinion and we go through it together. And um, so I get an opportunity, you know, I, I don't have to tell my story separate and then do the doctor's opinion because the doctor's opinion allows me an opportunity to really share exactly what my story is. And, um, and the, you know, the first paragraph starts off with this line about um, convincing testimony must surely come, you know, and it says of medical men who have experienced the sufferings. And then it lands on this statement, witnessed our return to health. And so, um, you know, what convinces people is seeing other people get well. And that's that's the great convincer more than anybody's words. Um, you know, and um, which is why whenever I'm in, given an opportunity – I show my photos because there's a visual demonstration of what it looked like and and how it looks today. And um, although, you know, it just shows the outside, I can zone in and sort of tell what's different about me today than, than what was there. And um, the convincing testimony is what I first heard here. I heard people speaking in a way I didn't need to see their pictures. I knew that they were well. You could, you could hear it. Um, you know, and then the second paragraph, it starts off with the letter, and it says, um, to whom it may concern, right? This letter starts addressing to whom it may concern. And in my book, I, I wrote, Dear Melissa, because I want to, this letter concerns me. I'm the person um, and that, that this letter concerns, and I want to read it like it's written to me. Um, that he's he's giving me information. This doctor is giving me information that's applicable to me. You know, if you then go down, it talks about a competent businessman of good earning capacity and come to regard, he was an alcoholic, I'd come to regard as hopeless. And so you can have good earning capacity and still be hopeless. And I think... That's something that's often um, very difficult um, for sometimes, especially compulsive overeaters. They, they, and I know for myself, I kept pointing out areas of my life that I, were, that I wasn't hopeless about, right? I could pay my mortgage. I never lost my job, didn't lose custody of my kids. Generally, you know, generally the house operated not great, but, um, you know, it, we were still sort of functioning. And yet I was hopeless. And I think um, that sometimes is a, a very dangerous thing for some of us. I did reach a point where it became clear that this was fatal for me. And other people sometimes struggle with this. But we're told right here, guess what? You can be competent and still hopeless. Um, which is good news if you're if you're sitting there thinking, mm, I haven't sunk that low yet. Um, you know, the 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 next part that it starts talking about in the doctor's opinion is um, that 
part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, oppressing, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others, right? So this working with others is part of my rehabilitation, even today, right? I say I'm recovered, but I think for the rest of my life, I'm going to be rehabilitating. <laughs> and um, and it starts, you know, in this early conversation that we have with one another, when we crack open the book, we look at the doctor's opinion, you know, we're we're there's a sp- very set directions on how we carry the message, right? We don't come in with too much hope right away. We're actually not supposed to. We're um, supposed to let our appearance and our demeanor speak volumes about hope. But we're not supposed to pat people on the back and tell them, oh, it's going to be okay, right? No worries, it's going to be okay. Um, But actually what we do right away is we have to impress upon people that this is a 12-step program and this is not an 11-step program and that if you want to get well, you're going to have to work with others um, it, it's not optional. It's not reserved for just a few people. And I think, um, you know, we're kind of told here, yeah, you you got to tell people right away that if they want to get well, this is the requirement. Um, you know, it, we're also told in the doctor's opinion that um, other methods, where, you know, We are of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. So what makes me, you know, the topic of my talk is really being a distinct entity. What makes me different, right? And part of what makes me different is that I have exhausted every other method. And it's always a good opportunity to... to, um, take a piece of paper and write down all the other methods you've tried. Um, at, you know, at one point I did speak on here about um, 26 different management strategies. Those are methods that I tried to control this disease, and diets weren't even on that list, right? If I add every diet I tried, I, I tried everything. And usually by the time we make our way here, we have exhausted every other method. And I think it's a good idea, you know, for to have people write down everything that they've done because we can be satisfied to know that if they failed, like no sense in retrying them, right? Um, you know, the letter ends, this first letter ends, that we can rely absolutely on anything we say about themselves. So this letter, so powerful, gave them credibility right, gave people who were drunks, right, gutter drunks, credibility, like, here, listen to what they have to say. And um, and I love that, you know, today my word is good. And not just, like, my word is good about general things, you know, that I might have some information on, but it says anything they say about themselves. And uh, to me, like, even more powerful than perhaps a physical transformation, is the fact that today what I talk about when I talk about myself, it's an honest, it's, there's an honesty behind it. I'm not, I'm not trying to promote myself. 
I'm not trying to sell myself. I'm actually just being I'm honest about who I am. You know, now it's going to start talking about our body, right? The next paragraph, it's it's talking about the body and that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So my body is abnormal. And, you know, um, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. And so if I don't stress the fact that there is something very different about my body, then I'm neglecting to share crucial information. And, um, and it's incomplete information. And so there is no discussion about moderation. There is no discussion about, you know, occasional <laughs> binging or occasional eating things that you know are your alcoholic foods. And, you know, while I'm not an allergy specialist, right, I don't have the results of anyone's blood work. I don't have the results of my own blood work. I know that this explanation is the only one that makes sense because all of my life I've never been able to just eat, like, two cookies. You know, I, I can't do it. If, if I can, my brain is so locked in on the rest of the bag, what's, you know, the rest of the box. And that's been my way my entire life. You know, part of what I share with people is, um, you know, I, I've, I've had discussions with my family, like my, my husband especially, like trying to explain to him what makes me different. You know, sometimes I'm like, you know, and I've said to him, you know, well, babe, because, you know, all of my early memories are food-related. And he said to me, yeah, he said, I don't know that that's what makes you different. He said, I have a lot of really happy memories about eating as a kid. You know, I remember all the things my mom made, my grandma made. And then I realized the difference is his are happy memories. <laughs> you know, my food memories are memories of longing. I, I, I remember, like, my grandmother, I would have a cup of hot cocoa with her at night, and she would give me two graham crackers. And it was, like, torturous because I had to get to the rest of the box. And I had to wait until she wasn't in the room, right? Um, so now it's going to further go on um, that we're going to work. And this is on the bottom of XXVI. So we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane. We favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative, crucial, that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So um, I, I really like to discuss this hospitalization thing because it's actually, it'll be repeated in here again. So if it's repeated, it's important. And hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged, you know, um, some people go into treatment, you know, for, for compulsive overeating. I know of people, many, many people who have gone into treatment facilities and they got cleared out, right? But then there's someone like me. And, 
Nobody suggested it when I was, you know, over 300 pounds killing myself with food. It wasn't ever discussed. Um, And I've worked with many, many people who have not gone into rehab. Um, But we have created our own hospitalization, and that's what I think is really important if you're just getting started. Um, Let's talk about how we can create a hospitalization period for you, you know, um, because you need to be cleared out. You know, you're not going to be able to do this work to engage with this text, to have any clarity of thinking, to really, actually, you're not going to have a necessity for God, which is what the requirement is, um, if you're eating, because you still have a God, right? It's the food. And when I'm in the food, I I hear every third word, maybe, right? So we want to make sure that people are cleared out. But, you know, hospitals actually don't leave people in a room alone to suffer. (laughs) They give them support. You know, and I actually think it's pretty funny. In a hospital, one of the things that they give you is a meal card (laughs) where you check off what you're going to eat each day. (laughs) And they bring you precisely what you said you were going to have. So, you know, I do tell people when I first start working, yes, we're going to get real clear about what your alcoholic foods are. And that's, I believe that's part of what a sponsor can do to assist somebody. We can, we can spend some time looking at their food together. We can have lots of discussions about it together. And then we land on, we help them land on what entire abstinence means, and we clear ourselves out. And if you're in the hospital, you know, if you're undergoing treatment, my understanding is that you're treating something that's pretty serious. And this disease is deadly. We know this is a fatal, this is a fatal malady. And um, so we're going to treat it like it's fatal. And if you're in the hospital treating something that's fatal, all outside distractions have to be pushed to the side for the moment. You know, it's not the time. If you're in the hospitalization period, it's not the time to suddenly take up bridge, right, or to suddenly decide that this is the year that you're going to, you know, you're going to um, move even. How's that? Like if you're in a hospitalization period, yeah, you're not going on vacation. You're not moving. You're not going to go out to dinner. It makes no sense. That would be like a drunk walking into a bar, right? So um, outside distractions have to take a back seat when you're in this hospitalization period. Now, this is not a forever solution, but it's enough so that we can start getting clear, so that we can start doing the work. And, you know, it's funny because it says here, there's a line that makes me laugh. It says that he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. And, um, um, you know, I think the, the addict locks in on this better and says, mm, so maybe I still have a chance if I'm eating, right? And, um, and what I would tell somebody is if you go to the hospital to treat something fatal, do you want the doctor to offer you, you know, the, well, the, the one that might work or the one that is guaranteed to work, right? I want the guaranteed to work. And, um, and I would say if you're somebody out there, you know, getting a new sponsee, you know, make it clear to them that you'll do anything we're told, we'll do anything to help. But my expectation is that you're going to be cooperating and you're going to do anything to help too. Um, So I want a 100% chance, 
right? I don't want the just a, a you know, sort of chance. I want the best chance. Um, you know, I'm going to look down now here. It says that we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. That we could not apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge, you know. Um, and so and when I read that, I get, okay, I understand I'm going to need another moral code, and it's different from the one that I've been living. Um, and we find out through the steps that we actually do get a code. You know, our code is love and is tolerance. That's pretty much our moral code. Um, but I can't apply this with my own intellect. And just like I knew what healthy eating looked like, I just couldn't do it. I knew what honesty was. I knew what unselfishness was, right? And yet I can't live within the boundaries of my own morals. I need I need a higher power to help me live in agreement with my own morals. And the addict, you know, <coughs> the food addict knows right from wrong. I I was taught right from wrong. I just can't abide by right and wrong. Because lack of knowledge is not my dilemma. It's lack of power. It's lack of power. So I actually need I actually need a relationship with God to help me live in agreement with what God would have me be and do. Um, you know, it it talks here about having a privilege of being allowed to tell their story and um and that they consented, right? And um and the reason they consented was because they saw like this thing working. And so what is it that's working? Well, unselfishness of these men as we've come to know them and the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit that it's inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. You know, you read that at first and you think, oh, that's so melodramatic, right? Um, but, um, you know, it's not. You know, there's an unselfishness here. Entire absence of profit motive, right? Leia's not making money <laughs> off, of, off of her, like, endless service. Um, I've not made a dime. The people that offered to help me, you know, that worked with me so hard, that took all of my phone calls, all of my questions, the sponsors I've had, the people that, you know, that I get to sponsor. Nobody here is making money. Um, I have friends, like, all over the country that do endless service, and there's an unselfishness about it. And I say this unselfishness, this, you know, this community spirit these are the characteristics of fellows who've recovered. By the way, that's the witness. That's that testimony. That's what I get to witness. People who just give endlessly without, you know, without expectation of, um, well, I did for you, now you do for me. You know, why is it that they're working so hard to help others, right? Because we believe in ourselves. Because we believe in this but even more in the power that has saved our lives. Uh, you know, 
I was pulled back from the gates of death. I, I know that. I, you know, my story is um, morbid obesity, dangerously high blood pressure. And, you know, I, I landed in Overeaters Anonymous many times, but really at the, at the end, for me, I was laying in bed at night and I could hear my pulse in my ears. When I was in a resting state, my head, my heart, was pounding so hard that I could hear it in my ears. And sometimes I thought other people must be hearing my heart pounding because it was just that heavy and loud. Um, I had sleep apnea that snored me awake every night. Everything in my body hurt. I had horrible, horrible, like, um, reflux. I basically sat, you know, slept upright Um, And my doctor told me, you're not going to make it out of your 40s. And here I am. I just celebrated my 53rd birthday. I don't experience any of those symptoms today. I was pulled back from the gates of death. I know it. I believe in it. Um, And that's why we do this, you know. Um, So then it's, again, it's going to mention this hospitalization period. And so um, if you missed it the first time, right, it's going to say it again because um, we often require a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. So I want maximum benefit. I don't want minimum benefit. Um, And I would say, you know, mm, if you're here and you're going to do the work, I don't believe you'd want minimum benefit either. Um, you know, now we're going to talk about the um, manifestation of the allergy, which is, you know, this is really what the doctor's opinion opened up for me years ago. When it was first cracked open um, for me, actually, they the person paraphrased it, and they, they, they told me that I had an allergy of the body, and that made it made sense. It really did. Um, you know, so we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, this is on XXVIII, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. And the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And in my book, like super highlighted asterisk is any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So this phenomenon of craving is limited to this class. To what class? to the class that I'm in, I'm this distinct entity, which is the title of this talk. Um, I am different from other people. You know, I am, I am not a temperate eater. Temperate eaters, you know, those are average eaters. And if I think about it like temperate weather, sometimes there's some fluctuation, but generally it's pretty steady, right? Um, so in a temperate climate, you're not going to get like a major blizzard. It might snow occasionally, right? It might rain occasionally. It might, but everything in moderation. And those are temperate eaters. You know, 
they might overeat. Sometimes you can't make a decision if someone's a compulsive overeater on Christmas or on Thanksgiving, but look at them the day after, (laughs) right? Look at people the day after because temperate eaters, they don't continue to overeat once they're truly full, which is, you know, this explains why um, I could go out to dinner with, with friends, right, girlfriends and I've had friends, I had like a book club, and after the book club, they would want to share a piece of cake, right? And they would actually, you know, there's a group of us, they would actually leave some of it over on the plate, you know, sharing it between a group of women and leaving some over. And they weren't calling upon willpower. It's not that they had incredible willpower, but they actually don't desire it once they've been satisfied. Normal people receive satisfaction from normal-sized portions. My grandmother could have those two graham crackers because they satisfied her. You know, normal people eat, and with each bite, the desire for more gets diminished. It goes down. And when I eat, the desire for more increases, which tells me that I can never treat food the way normal people can. Right? I heard it explained one time that if you're thirsty and you pour yourself a nice glass of water, do you need to call upon willpower to keep from finishing the glass of ice water? I don't. Once my thirst has been quenched, I'm good. And I think that's how normal people experience food. I say I think because I don't have experience you know, with that. I have a very specific and severe allergy. And for me, it occurs when I eat very specific foods, And it also occurs when I eat in very specific ways. And this identifying with the difficult foods and behaviors is something that I feel best that's examined and discussed with the sponsor in that hospitalization period. It's important that the sponsor has an honest exchange with the sponsee. And for me, I've had some techniques that I find helpful when people say, well, I can overeat on anything. Um, You know, I can help people determine if a food is the issue or if its behavior is the issue. And, you know, I've, uh, for myself, I can look at the portion size as one way that's helpful, right? I've, I've like, can look, turn, turn the label over, look at the person, portion size, measure that out, put it on your plate. How do you feel about that? If it pisses you off, if you're, if you're already, for me, there were certain foods and I could just, like, name them. I can't have, like, pasta or, you know, those kind of things. And how do I know that? Because if I put that portion on my plate, I am so angry that that's all I get that I'm trying to figure out, what if I don't eat anything else? Can I have more of that? That's usually a good, clear indicator for me, not a good food for me. And I also, you know, it says in any form at all. Well, once I've determined that I have a problem with a specific ingredient, then I can't have it anywhere, right? And... um you know, and I don't want to be like, I don't want to be controversial because, but, um, but I, I noted for myself years ago, I remembered hearing, well, I don't eat sugar recreationally. Now, I have a sugar problem, so I don't understand what that means, recreational. I think they meant just no desserts. But if I can't have it, I can't have it in any form at all. And that's what, that's what this tells me here. Can't have it anywhere. Right? It wouldn't matter if it's if it's in a marinade. It wouldn't matter if it's in a dressing. It wouldn't matter. You know, it just wouldn't matter. I just can't have it. Um, I also found out that, um, and this is something I work on with sponsees to figure out their allergy. 
I can't have look-alike foods. I can't have foods that resemble the real thing because I get a hit off of it, and that, and, and I'm seeking an effect. Um, for me, I found out that I just need to eat nutritionally. I can't eat meat. I can't eat with, um, not that I can't enjoy my food, but I can't make it an event. Can't be an event for me. Um, you know, now we're going to talk about frothy emotional appeal and that it seldom suffices. And the message, you know, which can interest and hold the attention has to have depth and weight. And it's got to be grounded in a power greater than themselves. And so, you know, um, I've had frothy emotional appeal, and it doesn't work. You know, if you're going to appeal to me from this overly emotional standpoint, all it does is it gets me really uncomfortable. And, you know, and I've had experience with this years ago when my when my children were really little, um, I think my son was a baby, my mother-in-law came over and um, she tried to appeal to me from an emotional standpoint. My husband wasn't home, and my mother-in-law um, basically sat me down at my kitchen table. And um, by the way, at the kitchen table where I could only sit in one chair at that table because the other chairs had arms on it and I didn't fit in it, Right which every time I sat down at that table, there was a level of humiliation because I knew that I had bought those chairs and I couldn't fit in them. Mother-in-law sat me down, and she appealed to me from this emotional standpoint. And she said to me, she told me about how she lost her mother as a little girl. Her mother died when she was when she was small. And she explained to me how it was just really sad and hard to go through life um, longing for her mother. And that every big, happy family occasion was always um, sad for her because she longed for her mom. She missed her mom. And she said, you know, it's a really sad thing that that happens, she said. And then I saw it happen to my son. You know, the truth, my husband actually lost his father when he was seven years old. His dad died. And so my husband grew up without a dad, and um, and my mother-in-law was sitting at my table telling me how it was so painful not only having that experience herself, but then watching it happen to her two small boys. And this woman who has been stoic, she's very stoic, she's a tough lady, Um, had to be, right? She grew up without a mom, and she grew up, you know, basically raising two little boys without without a husband. She started to cry, and she said to me, Melissa, I'm watching you, and you're going to do the same thing to my grandchildren. And, I mean, when I tell this story, even today, I get choked up. That's emotional. And you know what? It didn't work. How's that? (laughs) It didn't work. My mother-in-law, I was angry at her. I was pissed off that she, how dare she, is what I thought in my head. How dare she sit at my house? And tell me, right, what I should do. And, you know, I, you know what I did as soon as she left the house. I ate because that's what frothy emotional appeal does. And so when I speak to somebody, the difference is when we speak to each other, we don't tell other people that this disease is going to kill them. Mm-mm. 
what we do is we tell them this disease was killing me and I've been, you know, pulled back from the gates of death. And that's the message that has depth and weight. Um, you know, the men and women, this is the bottom of XXVIII. It says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it's injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They're restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others do, taking with impunity. After they've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. And this is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope in his recovery. Okay, that is like, that is a crucial paragraph. Um, What this tells me is we eat because of the effect produced by food. I don't eat because I'm a foodie. You know, it's not because I like the taste and flavor of food. It's not for the texture. It's not for the presentation. Um, But I get a hit. I get a buzz off of food. And I can actually feel that hit even before I begin to eat it. Sometimes just planning the binge, I would start feeling almost intoxicated. I remember, like, having it in my shopping cart. I could feel my senses, like, buzzing. You know, I, as a little girl, I remember riding the bus, knowing what was waiting for me at home in the refrigerator. And that sometimes it, it was the thing that got me through the day. It was what I would fixate on, you know, as as I was like in in reading, right, or in social studies, I would remember that there was something in the refrigerator, and it would be like the thought that got me through the day. And this sensation, this thing that I get, this effect that I get, it it's elusive. It escapes me. It's not long lasting. And even though it's hurting me, I can't tell what's true, and I can't tell what's not true because it seems to be normal to eat the way I was eating. When you're living that way, that is your normal, right? My normal was a daily binge on the way home from work. That was my normal, you know. And um, when I didn't eat, I was restless, I was irritable, and I was discontented. And what that means to me is I felt internally itchy, like itchy on the inside. And, um, you know, I, I, it's like I couldn't settle myself down. You know, what would happen is um, the, next, the next part right here talks about this. It's the addiction cycle. And what was explained to me is that it's actually more of an addiction spiral. And in my book, I, I wrote, I drew a little spiral you know this this spiral i get I get uncomfortable with life 
And so I give in. I take a bite of something. I give in to this desire, right? And once I take that bite, I can't stop but going for more. I do it until, well, for me, I binge until there's only, there's really only uh, three ways that my binging would stop. One is it got interrupted by another person. Two, I would pass out. I would just pass out. I would fall asleep. Or three, there was nothing more available, right? That it was never, never on my own choice, right? So um, what would happen for me is that something would happen, right, and it would upset me or just whatever. I would get some sort of a feeling and I would and I would think, God, I got it. You know, my mind would lock on taking a bite of something. And I would take a bite, and then the binge would start, and there was nothing I could do. Sometimes it would happen for me at, like, work, right? My boss would say something that would upset me <laughs> or upset even the staff. Everybody would get upset. And people would go into the staff room and be like, oh, my God. You know, I would hear people say, I need a piece of chocolate. And they actually need a piece of chocolate, right? They would take like one thing. And I would take one because there were other people around and I would get this hit. And then the rest of the day, my mind would lock in on what was in the staff room. And I would leave my classroom unattended, right? Asking my, my colleague across the hall to watch my class so I can go to the bathroom. I wasn't going to the bathroom. I was running into the staff room, hoping I wasn't seen, filling a mug, <laughs> filling a coffee mug with food and then putting a napkin on top of it or a plate on top of it and pretending the mug was hot, right, so nobody should see what I was eating, and then spending the day eating and eating and eating. And that would continue on through the night. Like I would go home from work. I would be eating, 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 eating. Um, I did this constantly. And, and then I would reach a point where I would sometimes emerge remorseful. And I would make these sw- – I would swear – resolution, I'm going to make a resolution, maybe you're making a resolution today, that this is it, I mean business this time, I'm never going to do this again, you know, I did this again and again and again, I made these resolutions, and basically a resolution is an empty promise, it's a promise without a plan, right, there's nothing behind it, but just somehow I'm going to have a magic Monday, I'm going to have a magic January 1st, um, And I did this over and over again Um, until something, right? And then I could put it down for a minute until something would upset me, and it could be anything, and I would be back and eating again. And the reason in my book it's a spiral is what happened was my binges got longer in duration. They took on more serious proportions. I needed to eat a lot more food. And I would, my binges would last much longer. And the periods where I would emerge remorseful became fewer and farther in between. I'm talking like years. <laughs> I had binges that lasted for years. And, and so it was like a spiral. And at the end, my life felt like a black dot, like I was wrapped up tight inside a spiral I could not get out of. You know, now the next paragraph is the really good news. 
because it says on the other hand, strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems, he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules, basically the steps, right? The steps led me to having an entire psychic change. My brain, my heart got rewired. You know, I say it's almost like I had a new transplant. I had a brain transplant. I was gifted with a new personality. That's what we're told, right? A spiritual awakening is a, is a personality change sufficient, right, to drive out the obsession. And what, what I would describe it as is if you think about that spiral, having a, um, having a spiritual awakening means that this spiral gets unrolled, it's like I don't want to get back in to that to that addiction cycle again. I have no desire to. Um, you know, and when I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, um, I follow a few simple rules, none of which include eating. None of it, right? And nor would I even think about it, which is why I've been able to have many <laughs> life problems knock down my door in a recovered state and not once return to the food. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Um, you know, it says here that we're easily able to control the desire because the desire is not nearly what it once was. I don't have the same desire for food the way that I once did. And that can only be the working of something much greater than me. You can't make yourself not want something, right? I could possibly make myself not have it for a period of time. But to make myself not desire it, that can only come from an outside, much more powerful, you know, source. Um, and that one is God. Um, you know, the next paragraph just sort of ends with this, um, that many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. So I didn't respond to the ordinary psychological approach. You know, I, I, I went to therapy many times, and therapy is wonderful, and I have nothing against therapy. I've actually had to, you know, return to therapy at times with other outside issues, um, which, by the way, what I found is in recovery, being recovered, anytime I've needed to call upon professionals in other ways, in other areas, the um, treatment has been far more effective <laughs> than it was when I was eating. You know, it was very hard to apply anything when I was eating. Um, I have nothing against therapists. It, therapy never worked for compulsive overeating. It's just not the solution to this particular problem. It's like taking the wrong medication. You know, psychological approaches tend to look at the why. And why I have this problem is it's a mystery and it's inconsequential information. I say asking why for me is spiritual immaturity. 
it's like, you know, when my kids would ask me why they had to go to bed or why I wouldn't let them do something, they really didn't want to know why. What they were really saying was, I don't like it. Make it different. And and that's what I did when I asked why too much. I was really, really just looking to assign blame. You know, it won't solve my problem. Assigning blame, by the way, if you're thinking you're going to come here and in Overeaters Anonymous and find out just exactly who did this to you and why, you know, and, and, and how dare they, um, that's not what this program is about, right? Uh, we do have a fourth step, but the fourth step is about finding our own part, <laughs> not necessarily finding theirs. Um, you know, um, in the bottom of XXIX, um, it starts discussing this, um, the phenomenon of craving, that it would dominate me, and I can't use my control to overcome it. And because of that, I wind up sacrificing everything because I cannot fight this allergic response that I have just the same way that if I was allergic to strawberries and I ate them, I could not use my mental faculties to keep myself from getting a rash, right? If I'm allergic to something and the allergy causes me to get a rash, it wouldn't matter how much I thought about it and how hard I tried it. If I ate it, I would get the rash. And it's the same thing with this phenomenon of craving. I can't control what happens once I ingest the certain substances. I just can't. Um, you know, the next part is going to start talking about the classifications, of, of different types. And, um, you know, this is on XXX. It says um, there's the psychopaths, right? And here we're told they're emotionally unstable. Um, I've always been told I'm overly emotional. You know, I'm overly remorseful. Growing up, my name was my nickname. My mom always called me Desdemona because I always had like a melodramatic, oh, poor me story um, that would get a lot of attention. Um, and the second type, you know, is the type unwilling to admit that he can't take a bite. You know, so for me, what did that look like? I was always changing my diet because I didn't want to admit that I really had something much greater than just a diet issue. So I did Atkins and all natural and organic and whatever whatever diet came my way, I tried it, you know. Um, the third type thinks that after a period of abstinence, they can suddenly control their eating. And that's never been true for me, no matter how long I'm abstinent. Um, I've had in the past, I had five years without any spiritual work, but I just put sugar down. I was able to do it for five years, which is by the way, I know that this disease has progressed because there's I could not do that again, right? Um, but long periods of abstinence, if you begin to ingest those alcoholic foods and you engage in those alcoholic food behaviors, no more able to control it than I was the day I put it down. In fact, it progressed. It got worse for me. Um, and, you know, then, then it talks about the manic depressive type. They're up and down and up and down and up and down. And then there's the type entirely normal in every respect except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They're able, they're often able, intelligent, and friendly. And I think the we often find that in Overeaters Anonymous, um, we've gotten all of us at times are all of these things. 
but we can hide out um, and, and seem to be normal, able, intelligent, friendly. You know, this disease can hide out, and it makes it look like you're really functioning quite well, and yet we're really not. You know, that's what it was for me. It, it's, it's a slow boil. Um, it's a slow boil. And I can look entirely normal except, and here's the important part here. This is the bottom of XXX. The important thing, it says that all of these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we have suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity, which is the topic of this talk, that I'm a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. So... It's important to note that we have a particular symptom in common. Can't start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. Can't start eating without developing the phenomenon of craving. And this makes us different. This makes me different from other people. It sets me apart as a distinct entity. And this allergy cannot be permanently eradicated. Can't get rid of it. So although we recover from the insanity, we do not recover from the allergy. What we have to do is abstain. So for me, I say this is the part that um, I want to talk about really about being a distinct entity. And what does it mean to be distinct, right? Well, here's the definition. Recognizably different in nature from something else of a similar type, right? So from other human beings, from other men, from other women, right? Separate, different. Physically separate, readily distinguishable by the senses, and clearly apparent as to be unmistakable, definite, right? That's what it means to be distinct to be, you know, permanent this way cannot be eradicated. So what I would suggest, and this is what I often do, and I have it on my paper, is I take a piece of paper and I fold it in half. And we set apart what makes us distinct. And the doctor's opinion really told me exactly what makes me distinct, right? And that, so on one half of the page are people like me. I'm going to say one half of the page is where I live, right? If I'm on this side of the page, can't be eradicated. So if I fold the paper in half, you know that crease that we make? Can't uncrease it once it's creased. That's permanent. Okay. What makes me distinct? I can appear to be competent and still be hopeless, right? That's one thing. Working with others is the only way that I can stay immune, right? By the way, if you're a heart surgeon, you don't have to have a heart condition yourself in order to be a good heart surgeon, right? So this makes me distinct. I've got to have this problem in order to help people with this problem. And the only way that I can have relief from this problem is by helping people with this problem. What else makes me distinct? I've exhausted every other method. 
I've tried everything. Everything else has been an epic fail. What makes me distinct? My body is not normal. Right? I have a very severe allergy that requires very severe, serious, right, care. I have to constantly think of others. <laughs> this is part of what makes me distinct. I have to be altruistic, right? I need to have tight parameters around my food. I don't eat in spontaneous ways. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I happen to be a woman who has to put all her food on a scale. That, that's the way that I have to live. And not only do I have to do that, I've got to write it down each day before I eat it. I have to pray and meditate before I even think about writing my food down. And then I have to give it over to another human being, another adult, right? Um, and I know this about myself. This is, for me, I believe this is permanent. And I don't look to eradicate that fact about myself. Um, I have to live by spiritual principles. This is what makes me distinct. I have a code that I have to live by. My code is love and tolerance, not fair and unfair. So what makes me distinct is I can't pay too much attention to what's right and wrong, to what's fair and unfair. What, you know, what, what's, what that's not right can't be too much of what I focus on. Um, what makes me distinct is I experience the phenomenon of craving. What else makes me distinct is I have a mind that tells me that I don't have this allergy or that tells me that I'm making too big a deal about it or can even tell me, well, it, yeah, you have this allergy. Yeah, it is a big deal, but who cares, right? Who cares? So I, I could have that problem too. What else makes me distinct? What keeps me on that side of the paper? Can't treat food like normal people. Food can be tasty, but it can't be a source of recreation for me. What else makes me distinct is you can't appeal to me from frothy emotion, right? You can't, you can't get me to work this program. You couldn't get me to work this program from, from appealing to me on an emotional perspective. What makes me distinct is only a message with depth and weight, only telling me how you were dying of this disease and only me seeing that you're no longer dying of this disease is the only thing that works. What else makes me distinct is that I had to diagnose myself. I could not get the diagnosis from anybody else. And here's the other thing that I think is crucial, is that my step one means that nothing but a miracle is going to save me. So what makes me distinct is I am a person who must, and I underline and highlight and asterisk, must have an experience with the miraculous. I must. And so if I know these facts about myself, right, then I'm someone, if I must have a miracle in my life, then I'm going to, to treat life like I am a woman on a mission for a miracle. And if you're on a mission for a miracle, nothing seems too ridiculous. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem um, like too much work. By the way, for me to pack my cooler of food and just bring it places, right? It doesn't seem like too much work to call a host or a hostess before an event and find out what they're serving. It doesn't seem too much for me to pray on my knees for the boss that reprimanded me, you know, two weeks ago. 
um, because I'm someone who's after a miracle, right? And so that line that's in the paper that cannot be eradicated means that I forever live on the side of the page, right, on that particular side of the page. And then on the other side of the page is the whole rest of the world, right? They can eat what they want. They can do what they want. They can gossip about their boss. They can, they can worry about what's fair and unfair. They can eat spontaneously. They can, they can have really good manners and never ask a host or hostess what's going to be served, right? They can do all sorts of things. They don't have to have a code like me. And that's great for them. My problem is if I think for a second that I belong on the other side of the page with them, if I think I can dip my toe where those people are, I'm in serious trouble. I'm in serious trouble. And that can happen long before I take a bite, right? And so um, now here's the good news is that we have a whole beautiful fellowship, and I don't have to live on that side of the page alone right? I'm a distinct entity, but usually by the time I've worked through the doctor's opinion with someone, they've either decided, hey, I'm a distinct entity too, and then I get another person that wants to live on that side of the page with me. Or if they're not, all's well. Found out, you know, just like the directions, perhaps we've made a friend and they can bear something in mind, right? The doctor's opinion is so so important. Um, you know, it offers me hope because it then gives two beautiful examples of people who who were hopeless, who looked like they were going to die from this thing, and they didn't. Right? They they um, they found the solution. You know, one had a gastric hemorrhage, pathological mental deterioration, lost everything, went from despairing, nervous, and emerged self-reliant and content. Wasn't even like the same person. And I want to say, you know, that's been my experience, that I came into these rooms, I couldn't even make eye contact. It was painful for me to speak at a meeting. It was painful for me to be there. You know, I, I wanted to hide. I wanted to hide, and I couldn't. And today, I don't want to hide. You know, today I feel like I'm alive. I'm, I'm on, I'm, um, I have a relationship with God. I have a mission. I feel like I've been given um, a set of directions. Um, and I don't live that way anymore. You know, I walk in a room. My eyes can meet anybody in that room, whether they like me or not. You know, by the way, this boss that I've had issues with, I'm okay with her. You know, I'm okay. I can still walk in a room. I have integrity today. My word is good. I am grateful that I'm a distinct entity. And um, with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Melissa, for your captivating and thorough presentation on the doctor's opinion. Just marvelous. Thank you for bringing the text to life, threaded together with your personal experiences and insights. Just very compelling this morning. Share ID 18,342. That's 18,342. 
1-800-242-8342 for this presentation. Melissa's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, to Melissa by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Amy A. KDG from Boston. Amy A. KDG. Star 1 to unmute. Rick J. Rick J. Felicia S. from New Jersey. Teresa S. There was someone I missed. I'm sorry, Felicia, not Teresa. Thank you, Felicia. I believe I missed someone after Rick J. Joy Claudia C. from New York. Okay, I believe that was Silvana G. Okay, this is who I have. Amy A, Katie G, Rick J, Savannah G, Felicia S, Joy B, and Claudia C. Okay, that's ample. Let's get started with Amy A. Everybody else, please mute. Thanks. Amy A, star one to unmute to pose your question. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Thank you, Melissa, for your share. Powerful. Um, my question is, would you please share how you go through your pause in step 10 throughout the day when you do feel restless, irritable, discontent, and in the beginning when you did have cravings? Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I practice step 10 <laughs> I um, <clears throat> when something upsets me. Um, sometimes I'm in the middle of a work day, right, and I can't, I can't leave my class and go do a 10-step. But I can in the moment because, the, by the way, the purpose of, of step 10 is that um, I'm feeling blocked, right? I'm feeling this wall between me and, and God and my purpose, and I'm being blinded by outside distractions, by people, by things, by places. So my the, the purpose of a step 10 is to get me back in line, to get me right, to get me comfortable, and so that I can have a relationship with God again. So if I'm in a super, like, busy spot and I can't do anything about it, I take a second, right? I take a deep breath. I invite God in. I can put one hand on my heart. I can put one hand on my belly. I can just... I can just lean into God's presence. I can ask God, you know, please help me. Please increase my tolerance for this situation. Diminish my sensitivity. Let me feel close to you. Um, show me what you want me to do. Show me how you want me to be. I can take a deep breath, right? Okay. But then most of the time, um, a lot of times that, that's pretty good. That works. That's, that's it. And I can focus and I can get back to helping others. And if there's something I did that, to make something wrong, I can go ahead and fix it. Many, many, many times I need I need another human in there to help me. So I will. I will sit down real quick. I'll put together a, a step 10, and I will reach out to somebody and do it. I follow the directions. What I found is that it's important that I don't repeat 
redoing that step 10 again and again and again, hoping that I'll feel better when I speak to more people about it because that actually makes it worse. Um, so I find the right person. <laughs> and then if I'm not feeling better, <clears throat> the second part of the direction is go find someone to be helpful to. Turn your thoughts resolutely to someone else. And, and that's what I do. hope that helps. Thank you, Amy A., for your question. Katie G., your turn. Hi, Leah. This is Katie G. I'm assuming you just called me. Good morning, Leah. Thanks for your service. Melissa, always grateful to trudge with you and learn from you. Um, Two-part question. One, um, I'm confused. If I get to step 12, sometimes I hear that I can safely consume the foods that I was allergic to. Like if I'm spiritually fit enough that somehow my allergy is going to change so that if I'm on, let's say I'm on step four and I pick up the food, right, no big deal. And I should just keep going. I'm just wondering your experience with those two um, entity or ideas. Thank you. Sorry, I double muted myself. Um, okay, so two questions. So does this uh, allergy get fixed through working the 12 steps? No. It says really clear, can never be perm you know, cannot be eradicated. So not according to these directions. What I found for myself and other people I work with is that if you're recovered, the thought of, of eating that is pretty um, – I don't want to eat those things. I think that's what's been recovered is that I don't want to play with those substances. I don't – no, I, I have not found that my allergy has been fixed. In fact, I think my allergy got more severe because this disease is progressive. Um, and do I keep moving on and go ahead? No, there's something, you know, um, there's something lacking and there's either in, in something that came before. So no, I don't just plow ahead if somebody's about to get their fourth step and they're and they picked up and they ate. Well, <clears throat> either either, you know, there was something that, that needs reworking, re examining. And I don't know, you know, depending on the case, it might not take uh, you know, weeks and weeks to regain the work that they've done. It might just take um you know, a little, maybe more, a quicker approach. It depends on the person. But, no, I don't just plow ahead if somebody's eating because we, you know, um, it can't, it's, it's not as effective, right? You can't, you can't um, identify what your part is in anything if, if you're drunk on food. So, thanks. I'll pass. Thank you, KDG. Rick J., your turn. Hey, Leah. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for um, sharing with us, Melissa. My name's Rick Jay. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in North Carolina. And I um, always love it when you share. I've been uh, writing a lot of notes here. One thing you said really uh, popped out at me, and, um, you know, I'm, I love uh, my prayer and meditation. You know, but one thing I, I was really interested to hear is that you pray and meditate before committing your food. And I just wondered if you could uh, expand on that a little bit. You know, do you do it in the morning when you're, you know, doing your own awakening? Do you do it before each meal? Just wanted to hear a little bit more about the prayer and meditation as it uh, relates to our um, our food for the day. Yep. 
great. Thanks, Rick. Yep. Happy to hear you too, my friend. So, um, my my spiritual practice is um, I I review my nightly inventory. Like when I wake up, I I look it back over again because that's going to give me data for what I'm going to pray for, right? Um, it's sort of like my feedback. And I take that and then I sit. I spend time in quiet prayer and meditation every morning. Um, I go through my prayers. I sit and meditate. And then after that, while I feel like I'm clear-headed, I sit down and I write down my food for the day. And what I feel like is, you know, step one tells me that nothing but an act of providence, right? A miraculous experience. I needed God to actually step in between me and the food, like an intervention, God's intervention. And I and I need God's input. I, I feel like I need God to, I know what I'm supposed to eat, but I need help. I need God's help. So if ever I'm open to hearing it, it's right after I've made conscious contact, deliberate conscious contact. And then I write it down specifically what I'm going to eat for the day. And I commit it at that point. I send it off to my sponsor, um, along with any other spiritual work that I've done. I do some writing and send that to her as well. Um, and what I what I have found is that if I later on in the day start thinking, well, I said I was going to have an apple, but I'd rather have a banana, I start thinking that's my own self-will making an appearance, and that's probably not God's will. And and so I like having it written down, knowing that it was it was presented to me right after I prayed and meditated, and that's what I'm going to eat. I also do try to pray not always, but oftentimes before a meal, that I just ask God, especially, um, I had a friend share this with me early on, that please, God, allow this meal to nourish my body and not feed my disease. And um, and that was really helpful. Um, so with that, I'll pass. Thanks, Rick. Yes, thank you, Rick. Silvana G., your turn, star one to unmute. Um, thank you for your service. Um, I'm Savannah G. And what I'd like to know, um, Melissa C., is that during your recovery, um, have you have you been doing more ten steps or less ten steps? Or can you tell me? Do I do more now or less? Yeah. Generally like, speaking. Hmm. Probably less, but you know what? I don't even want to say that. That's not really true. It depends on what's going on in my life, right? I think in the beginning, I was, I, I didn't have, I hadn't developed much tolerance for things. I was like a raw nerve, right? And and remember, like the end of step ten, that paragraph that talks about step ten, it says love and tolerance of others is our code, and so tolerance means like, like my threshold for discomfort has actually, it's actually gotten greater. I can actually bear more discomfort. I don't experience it like a raw nerve. Like I did when I first put the food down, everything annoyed me. You know, people chewing their food was like a personal attack against me. And I don't experience life that way right now. So on a whole, holistically, I'm not 10-stepping those minute things, right? But I... I've had life's problems knock down my door, and I know enough to I don't let it accumulate, right? So, like, 
something happens with my sister, something happens with my boss, something with my daughter, I'm doing it right away so that it doesn't build up. Um, I hope that helps. Thanks. Pass. Thank you, Silvana G. Felicia S., your turn. Star one to unmute. Good morning. Thank you for your service. Um, I'm Felicia S., recovering compulsive overeater. Thank you so much uh, for your message today. My question is, um, from a morning and evening, you, know, you gave us, you started to tell us about the praying before meals, but from an 11-step perspective, uh, would you share your, um, what your prayer and meditation morning and evening spiritual routines look like now? Thank you. Yep, absolutely. So, um, I do a lot of praying. <laughs> I do a lot of praying and a lot of meditating. Um, because I want, you know, this program is about having a relationship with God. That's what it, that's what that's what the 12 steps are designed to put us into a relationship with God. Um, and so, if I want a relationship with anything, it means that I give it my time, like all good relationships, right? Any relationship that I've had that has grown and strengthened are relationships that I go to, that I build on, that I that I enjoy being with, right? So my prayer and meditation, um, I get up in the morning, I have a whole series. I, ref- I look over my nightly inventory, and I don't send it out before bed. I usually send it out in the morning, so I look back over it again, and it informs me. It helps me know what areas... Um, you know, I want to, because my med, part of my meditation is um, I, I ask God to, like, help me, like, know what, what I should do today, right? Give me, give me, your, give me your divine um, intervention. Give me some, some inspiration and thought, an intuitive thought, right? So I look over my nightly inventory at that point, I read it, and I send it out. There's people that I share my nightly inventory with. Then... I sit down, you know, um, sometimes I sit, sometimes I'm on my knees. It depends on what's going on in my life. I've got a series of prayers that I that I say. They're 12-step based, many of them. Some of them are my own personal prayers. I like to write prayers. That's like one of the things I found that I really enjoy doing. I sit and I write down my prayers. And I have them on my voice recorder option on my phone because I, I know something about instruction. And I know the more modalities, the more entry points, the greater the greater their chance of, of internalizing information. So if I can listen to it and read it and speak it, now I've got three entry points. And so that's what I do. I listen, <laughs> I say it, and I read it. And sometimes I'm on my knees, sometimes I'm in my prayer chair. Um, I have a space that I like. Um, and I pray, and I meditate, and I do lots of different meditations. Um, I like different apps. I like different, you know, different, there's many, many. We're actually encouraged, you know, in step 11 in the AA 12 and 12. It tells you to, like, try some. You know, if you don't, if you haven't found one you like, try another one. So um, I try it. You know, I try all different ones. Um, and if if I don't do like a guided meditation. What I also really like to meditate on is I like to meditate on this idea of love. And I close my eyes and I visualize love like a big red balloon. And I imagine it, 
I have a huge family, and I imagine this big red balloon bouncing from one family member to the next. I just, I just go down my family tree, and I picture what would it look like if this balloon of love just visited each person in my world. And then I try to turn that balloon of love towards people in my workplace, especially if they're upsetting me. Or I turn it or I think, okay, what would it look like if I bring that balloon of love into my classroom, if I bring it into my actual home, if I bring it... Those are some of the ways that I pray and meditate. And then when I'm done, I crack open my big book. I like to study exactly what we're studying um, on vision. I, I think that the more I'm in the book, the more useful I am to others. I read the paragraph that we're, that we're going to be discussing. I write on it. Um, I respond. I do my work with my sponsees. It's a lot of work. By the way, that's part of being a distinct entity that I did not necessarily uh, drill in on, that it's Sunday. My husband slept in. You know, he's hanging out. He's doing his thing. My, I require a lot of work as a distinct entity. I require a lot of, a lot of meditation and a lot of work in order to keep me well. Um, but living with this disease was a lot of work, too. And um, I have a friend who said, choose your heart. Choose your heart. Which heart would you rather have? I'd rather have this heart. So I hope that I, know I answered like a lot. of jumped all over, but I hope that answers your question. Thanks. Thank you, Felicia S., for your question. Joy B., your turn, star one to unmute. Hi, good morning. This is Joy D. in New York. Thank you so much, Leah and Melissa C. It was really, really fabulous to hear um, you break down the doctor's opinion. <clears throat> I just, excuse me, I got something in my throat. <clears throat> and Happy New Year to everybody also. Um, I, one of the things that I really identified with what you said was when you um, talked about the um, like the emotional part, how like your mother-in-law sat down at the table with you and approached the topic. And even though it, in her mind might have been a caring concern, you um, took it a different type of way. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate more. Like I said, I, I can identify with that piece of it a lot, but um, like how is the best way to to like deal with that in that moment when when that's happening in not only in just somebody saying like oh you could be potentially like causing so much harm to your life but just taking constructive criticism or dealing with like toxic environments at work like taking things like so personal that it may cause you to turn around and um, jump into like the behavior that could cause more harm to you. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, but if you, well, a little if you can... bit. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna like jump in and answer as best I can. Um, okay. So I now I look back at it and I realize first of all this woman loves me. I mean that's the truth. I try to imagine it must have been so hard for her to carve out a time and a quiet space and to gather up. I know my mother-in-law. She loves me. Her intention was not to pour salt in my wound. She wanted to help me. And I would imagine that she tried to gather up all her forces and to help me, right? She wanted to help me. So it helps, you know, for me, we're actually, we're told, you know, part of our inventory process is that, we have to divorce ourselves from our old thinking. 
meaning to look at it as though it was an attack and to perhaps see it from another angle. We're supposed to look mm-hmm. at things from another angle. And that has to be my call, you know, right now. And I would probably ask you, like, where are you in the steps? Because if you're early on in the steps, by the way, every time somebody made a, f- a funny face, I, I thought it was a, it was an attack. I've mm-hmm. experienced, and I, by the way, I could still be that way. How's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're overly emotional. We're sensitive. We experience mm-hmm. life personal, personal to us, right? Yeah. So I would probably impress upon you if right now you're early on in recovery, do as much as you can completely disregard anything that anybody says or does, focus on your own spiritual development. Yeah. And and especially like, you know, people get all like worked up about their marriages and early recovery and they're going to tell their husband and, and I always say to people, uh-uh-uh, like, just just get recovered, let your husband be, let your children be, unless somebody's in mortal danger, let's just, you're in the hospital right now. You're not going to tackle anything but your hospitalization. That's it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. The steps, thank, the thank steps you. diminish our sensitivity. Thanks. Thank okay. you so much. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks, Joy D. Our final question for the morning comes from Claudia C., Star one, tell me, Claudia. Hi. Um, Claudia, we lost you. Star one, to unmute. Okay, thank you. Uh, I got so much uh, from everybody. Thank you. Um, all the other questions and the and the answers. Um, my questions are: I have two. Um, uh, you talked about not using food um, for recreation, and um, you know I feel really uh, in a good place about that. Um, but I would like to know, like, what you do, and and um, how do you have boundaries around recreation things? Like, I sometimes have a hard time with, um, you know, if I go shopping or something. I, you know, I don't know of what to do. I, I just struggle with recreation. Um, and then the other thing is if you could explain a little bit more about the fair and unfair on one side of the page. I loved the um, one side of the page, other side of the page. Um, I just it wasn't um, clear on what that part meant. So those two things. Thanks. Sure, sure. Okay, so Real quick, as far as recreation, I can do all sorts of wonderful recreational (laughs) activities. In fact, I found out when food wasn't determining what I did, I learned that I love to kayak. I never knew that before. I learned that I love to hike, I like to garden, that there were things that when food was determining, when it was calling the shots, when it was telling me what I liked, right, and it was telling me what I could do because my body was, you know, was being beaten up by food, um, I didn't know what I liked and what I didn't like. So today I can enjoy all sorts of recreational activities. When I say about recreation, I was talking about recreational eating. So although we go out to dinner, my family likes to go out for dinner, um, it can't be too much of an event for me. It can't be an escape from eating the way I normally eat. I've got to like you know, what does that look like? It means, like, I know exactly what's on the menu before I get there. I know exactly that the food does not have anything in it that I can't have. 
I know the exact portion that I'm going to have there. It is committed. It is right. I mean, it's. I'm not eating for fun's sake. I'm not going out to eat so I could overeat. Can't do that. That's what I meant by recreational eating. Um, and um, as far as uh, that side of the page, fair and unfair, I lived my whole life experiencing things with an immature attitude, like that's not fair and why me? And um, and the more I focus on that. Um, the more that seems to grow, the more that thing grows. And, you know, um, and when, I, when I take step three, it means that I'm going to trust God with the management of this world, of this life, and that perhaps it doesn't look fair to me. Perhaps it doesn't look like it sh- it's what should be happening. But I'm not the one in charge of making those big worldly decisions, Right. And the only thing that I can have any power and effect over is my own action, is my own behavior. So, you know, a, a great example was the cleanliness of, of the bathroom in my workplace. It was horrific at one time. And I walked around feeling pissed off and sore. It's not right. It is not right. It's not fair that I have to work in, in an environment, blah, 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 blah. And actually, you know, um, one one morning it just dawned on me that um, that wasn't getting me anywhere, but I actually had the ability. I've done it in my own house. I can clean a bathroom. I could actually clean. And is that fair? It's not fair. It's not fair. And I wasn't doing it to be people-pleasing, and I wasn't doing it with, with, to be a doormat, but I just felt like it was going to increase my tolerance and, and bring more love into the workplace instead of more negativity. And so I did it. You know, and those are the small actions that this program of recovery has propelled me to take. And um, I hope that helps. Thank you, Claudia C., for your question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Melissa, as always. Such a gift this morning, this outstanding presentation on the doctor's opinion. Of course, it will be archived and and utilize for years to come. Much appreciated. Thank you. Outstanding and so very helpful. Let's close now from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.